Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with, and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network, in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. Today, I am so delighted to welcome Giles Dooley to tell us his social founder story. Giles's incredible life story, and he's still so young, is what leads him and us to his social founder story and his current role as the founder and chief executive of the Legacy of War Foundation. Giles's physical and mental resilience are like nothing I have seen or heard before. We'll hear in this episode of Social Founder Stories how throughout his life he has responded to adversity, but in particular, at the age of 40 in 2011, how stepping on an IED in Afghanistan left him desperately fighting for his life for months after the loss of both legs and an arm. No one expected him to survive those horrendous injuries, let alone to find the drive to continue to work and travel, using his professional skills and his determination to create high-level, positive social impact. Giles's reaction to unimaginable physical and mental trauma has been to become a social founder, setting up the Global Legacy of War Foundation, using his award-winning photography and media skills to document the legacy of war across the world. You will hear a little from me in this interview. Giles tells his powerful story, and I listen, moved and amazed at his courage. Giles, welcome to the Social Founder podcast series, and we're thrilled to have you with us, and can't wait to hear your story. Well, first off, thanks for um, inviting me to come here, and it's a great opportunity yeah, to talk about my work and, and how that led to the starting of the Legacy of War Foundation. I mean, really... You know, there are many, many parts of the story, but I think probably most suitable is to start when I was 18. I was not a very good student. I struggled a lot at at school. I was planning to go to the States on a sports scholarship at 18 um, and really sport was my life. And then I had a, a minor car accident when I got to America, which meant that all my plans were put on hold. I came back, I was in hospital, so I'd never do sport again. So I was an 18-year-old lying in a hospital bed in London, a very angry young man, very frustrated, no idea what was going to come next to my life. 
And at that particularly low moment, um, my godfather unfortunately passed away, but he left me two things and two small gifts that were really to change my life forever. Mm-hmm. One was um, a book by the war photographer Don McCullen. Another was an Olympus OM-10 camera. And really, I grew up in a house. My parents were that interested in art, in news or, or media. And I'd never seen photographs like Don McCullen's, these, these black and white, mm-hmm. stark black and white images of famines in Bangladesh, Biafra, war, Vietnam, just incredibly powerful images. And they just changed my life. You know, literally overnight, looking at those images, I knew there and then that's what I wanted to yeah. do with my life. So I just taught myself the basics of photography. I mean, photography is relatively simple. So I just sort of taught myself in a hospital bed, started shooting a few rolls of film of, of, of the fruit bowls or doctors or nurses, anything I could photograph. So you were in the hospital when this was happening, which is interesting for, mm. for the, the next stage of your story years later. Yeah. How funny. Yeah. I never really think about it, but yeah, I yeah. guess it is. But yeah. um but yes, I, I left and I was, you know, full of good intentions to go and become a, a war photographer like like Don McCullen. But mm. I had a few friends that were in bands and musicians. I started photographing them and kind of really by accident, I became a, a music photographer, a rock and roll photographer. I was 19 years old. It's about the coolest job you could possibly have. Yeah. You know, traveling around the world with, with you know, on the road with bands like Oasis, or Mariah Carey, Marilyn Manson. Um, and really just, yeah, got swept up in the whole the whole thing of that, that, that lifestyle for the next 10 years of my life. You won an award, didn't you, for some of those photos that you took at that time? Yeah, I was relatively successful. Yeah. So, yeah, I won awards and worked for great magazines like Vogue and, and GQ. And, you know, it was quite unusual. I was very young. You know, normally people assist and, and yeah. do stuff before I was 19 and, and you know, published and, and working. So it was kind of crazy start to my life. It was a good time to be in the music scene. It was mid-90s in London. There was a real buzz about what was happening. So it was an amazing time to be part of it. So you had these incredible 10 years, envy of any young person at that time. And then what happened? What made you change your career path? Um, I mean, as the years went on, I was just increasingly frustrated with the industry. The industry was changing a lot. As I say, it went from you know, the mid-90s where magazines were really essential to, to, to popular culture. You know, great magazines from The mm. Face, ID... Select, Q, all these different enemy. Um, and then very quickly that, that was dying out and it was being replaced by the sort of celebrity culture and, and people who were just, you know, contestants on Big Brother were suddenly the celebrities and <laughs> social media was making people celebrities and I just didn't like it. I didn't want to photograph somebody who didn't have a, a story. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, you'll, you'll see throughout my work is whether it be as a fashion photographer, music photographer, covering conflicts, I'm actually, in my heart, I'm a portrait photographer. You know, my work's always about people and photographing yeah. people. And I'm only inspired if the person in front of my camera is interesting. So as, as that kind of whole celebrity culture took off, I, I just didn't find I was photographing people I was interested in. And I also grew cynical about the way that women were portrayed in magazines in that, that era. That was changing a lot. Um, so the over-sexualization of every, every actress, every singer. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I felt uncomfortable that if you photographed a man in a magazine, he'd be wearing suits and, and styled. And the woman, even if she just won an Oscar, would have to be in her underwear. Huh. So really, the, it was a lot of different things and, and yeah. just some level of, of dissatisfaction with my life generally. Yeah. Um, and all those things were just kind of welling up. And I just found myself doing, uh, as you said, the kind of dream job. Mm. And then just not feeling happy and thinking, well, there's something weird if I don't feel happy. You How know. old were you when, when you started feeling this? Uh, from, from sort of 27, 28. Yeah. Um, and, and just then it came to a climax one day and, and I was doing a photo shoot 
um, in Charlotte Street Hotel mm-hmm. in Soho. Mm-hmm. And there was a young actress that was kind of, there was an argument going on about her state of undress and she was upset and the editor was shouting and her agent was shouting and I just thought, this is not why I became a photographer. So the, the story was actually I threw all my cameras out the window <laughs> in a kind of uh, Rolling Stones type of rock and roll moment. But <laughs> but anyone that knows me knows I'm actually much more of a Radio 4 guy. I'm much more chilled than that. So actually what happened is I just threw them on the bed yeah. um, in a hissy fit and yeah. just unfortunately bounced off the bed and out the window. Are you serious? Um, they actually did fall out. Yeah, yeah. It was big, big old cameras. A Mamiya RZ, which is, if anybody knows, it's a huge studio camera. So it smashed down into the street. Um, and there was a crack in the Charlotte Street Hotel in their pavement for the next 10 years. I used to walk by and always see it. So wow. it was quite a dramatic moment, but it was a symbolic end. And, and really, that's it. I just gave up photography. Um, in my mind, I said, I'm never going to take another photograph. And just that was it. Left London and, and moved down to Hastings by the Sea, got a job in a, in a bar. Giles, no. Yeah, no. You just, you just thought that's it. You're not going to do any more photography. No, no. I just um, I'm, I tend to be very you, dramatic in my decisions, and when I make a decision, that's it. And and at that moment, it was photography was just something I had failed in. You know, I, I'd succeeded in a lot of people's uh, eyes by working for these big magazines and 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 having this kind of lifestyle. But actually, for me as a photographer, I failed because I hadn't found my my voice with it. Because presumably, also you were earning quite a lot of money as well, so. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, I was a cliche. I was married to a model, had a great flat in London, yeah. and earning, you know, hell of a lot of money to go around and just not really work. So, yeah, it was a great life. So nobody could really understand why I, I walked away from it. And how did you feel then at the time? Were you feeling angry? No, just depressed. Really, really depressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I've always suffered from, from depression, and, and it really overtook okay. me then. So it became something that the, the depression overwhelmed me. Um, yeah, I just really didn't, didn't really know where... I was going to go next with life. I couldn't really see much point in, in anything huh. at that stage. So what happened next? Tell us about how you coped with that feeling and what, you, and what it made you think and, and the process for you then making a big change. It's a kind of random uh, twist of, of various coincidences and mm. fate. But I ended up becoming a care worker for a young man called Nick with autism. And that was a really good kind of lesson for me because I'd gone from working in a very selfish world, you know, mm-hmm. the world of fashion and music, which is very much about egos and, and, and self-promotion and, and advertising and selling, to doing something which is, which is one of the most pure professions you could ever do, which is one-on-one care work. Yeah. Um, it's a very humbling job to do. And it's a very good job if you don't care about yourself, if you're in a position where you're not very happy, it gives you purpose every day because you have to get up for somebody else. Yeah. I pretty much live in care for the same... Always for the same guy. For yeah, for Nick. He's severely autistic, meaning he really can't, uh, be on his own. He, he self harms a lot. Um, a lot of basic tasks he struggled with. So he really needs twenty four hour support, um, which is which is yeah what I did. Um, and then over after two years of working with Nick, we started trying to find ways to to make sure that people understood his story. So Nick was about twenty then, and he mm. was self harming very badly. So he punched himself in the face until he was bleeding and and black eyes, and and he wasn't really getting the support that he needed. Um, mm psychological support, uh, medical support. And I think people thought his mother was always exaggerating when she was telling stories about Nick and what he did. Mm. So we, we then thought, well, you know, an obvious thing to do is to actually document his life and work with Nick, photographing uh-huh. his life. So um, a friend bought me a camera again, and I started just documenting Nick's daily life. And because we had a very high level of, of trust, he would allow me at times to photograph him when he'd just been self-harming, so he had blood kind of pouring down his face. And they're very dramatic and 
and unsettling pictures. <laughs> so when we show those pictures to the psychologists um, and to the kind of healthcare professionals, yeah. you could see them kind of take a step back and suddenly they got Nick's story and they understood what was happening. And so that was a eureka moment for me when photography suddenly became something uh, that I realized has a really powerful tool to act as an advocate for somebody, to help somebody tell their own story. And that was really the moment that I, I kind of saw the direction that I wanted to go with my work, that yeah. I wanted to return to photography. But this time I wouldn't be photographing bands, I wouldn't be doing advertising. What I would be doing is simply using my camera as a tool to try and create change, yeah. to be an advocate and to, yeah, hopefully make a small impact on the world. And did, did it remind you of that time when you were 18 and in hospital bed with the Don McCullen book? Yeah, in, in some ways. I mean, there were certain elements of that, that first feeling of, of seeing Don McCullen's work and, and the first feeling of just taking photographs. But also, by then, I'd really changed a lot. You know, myself, I'd been through my own journey, but I knew what I wanted to do was, was something that didn't really involve me. This was about purely telling other people's stories. So in the same way that I had found some kind of salvation from my depression by being a care worker, yeah. I could extend that through with my photography. And the photography would always be about helping other people. And you're starting to use photography to reach out more widely to other people through Nick's story. Did you get it published out of interest? No, no, no. It was a private thing. So we didn't publish it and no intention to publish it. Mm. Um, and that, that's the thing as well. It's, it's, you know, photography, people get caught up in that thinking, oh, you know, success means getting something published or, mm -hmm. or doing it. it. It's not. Success for me is, is what happens because of those photographs. So a lot of the work that I do is not necessarily for a magazine or, you know, if, if I can sit and make sure that the right person, a politician sees it, yeah. or if I can get it in, in, in you know, front of somebody who maybe can, can impact that person's life, then that's, that's my job. Magazines are just one outlet, yeah. but not really the end goal. The aim always is to work with the person yeah. whose story you're telling and let them guide you what you want to do with those photographs. So... What was the next stage in your journey? This is I moved to Angola. Uh, I had a friend that was wow, was, was, that. was working for DFID in mm. Angola. Uh, so from what, Hastings to Angola. Yeah. So I, I've always said, like, if I do think you have to do it to its full. So I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Mm. And there was no point kind of, you know, trying to, to pussyfoot around. And, and I always think, you know, people don't give you breaks. You have to create breaks yourself, and photography especially. Mm. You know, if a young photographer comes to me and says, how do I get to work? How do I do this? I say, well, there's going to be no job. There'll never be a job advertised for a photographer. <laughs> Nobody in Vogue is ever going to say, hey, hey we need a fashion photographer. Nobody yeah. in the Times is going to say, we need a war correspondent. You have to create it yourself. You have to create work that then people see and think, oh, I need that. I want that. It's interesting you say that, actually, because that, that's kind of, that, that's something that all our social founders have in common. Nobody's come up to them and said, oh, can you, can you have a job as a founder of a charity or we'll pay you to become a social entrepreneur or anything. It's something that comes deeply out of themselves. And it is actually quite creative. There are huge parallels between the creative urge and the social change urge. And if they can come together, then it's a very, very powerful mix. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I decided that therefore if I was going to do this, I had to mm. fully kind of embed myself in a situation. And as I had an old school friend who was, based in Angola. Angola was an interesting country for me because I knew my focus was always going to be um, on the, the legacy of war, the long-term impact of, of conflict. I wasn't really interested in going and becoming a war photographer per se, but actually looking at what happens to communities who have been impacted by war. And had the war in Angola finished by then? Yeah, yeah. That's why it was a, a perfect place to go because it was a post-conflict community. 
people had lost interest in it in the media because people saw it as the war being over. But you know, it was coming out of over twenty six years of war, so obviously the 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 social fabric of that whole country was defined by that conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was huge horrendous. legacy. Of, yeah, huge legacy of landmines, of, of destroyed infrastructure, of communities that have been split and, and turned on each other. So it was it was good because I knew there wouldn't be a lot of people telling the stories from there. And and as I say, nobody else was really telling stories from there. It's it's one of the game, one of the other issues. You know, we we've become very um, myopic in in the way we document things. And photographers and newspapers and magazines work, whether it be one conflict, one story that everybody goes to and everybody's covering. Well, it was and, like when when the landmine issue first came up with Princess Diana mm. and the Red Cross. So so were those NGOs, the landmine NGOs, around? Angola it was a mixture. Time, it was, it was um, MAG, which is the Mines Advisory Group, which is um, a demining charity that I have a long relationship with. But that's when I first kind of came into contact with them, uh, with UNHCR, yeah. IOM. And basically, I just sort of would call up all these different agencies and say, look, you know, I'm in the area. I would like to document your work. If you facilitate it, you're welcome to use my photographs for free. Um, that's good. That's yeah, good. and that's just yeah. how I built my relationship. So that's really the start of, of what would be, you know, 15 years then of, of working with those with those NGOs. Right. And had you, had you in your mind, were you thinking of setting up an organisation at this stage? No, I mean, at that stage, it was just, it was, you know, a big learning curve. I just knew I wanted to get there and, and work with organisations to to help them to yeah. raise funds and, and tell stories. Yeah. So what happened in Angola and then what after Angola? Well, I mean, Angola, I was there for six months, I think. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was very intense because it's a big learning curve about how you work in those situations. Um, obviously, I had, I had, you know, a good photographic eye and technique, etc., from years of doing editorial, but actually learning how you communicate, how you build trust, how you listen to people's stories. Um, yeah, it's a, bit, it's a big learning curve. So I was I was out in the field sort of every day, just learning, taking photographs, and 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 sort of critiquing my own work and, and developing it. Um, and then started yeah working mainly in, in in that kind of region. So I started working in, in South Sudan. Um, a little bit in DR Congo. And were people paying you? Because that, the usual dilemma for anyone setting up a an NGO or a foundation is where do you get the money from to actually those first few months, if not years, of set up? No, no, no. I definitely wasn't being paid. As I said, what I did was was I would say to NGOs, if they facilitate me, yeah. I, you're staying with them, you're eating with them, you're driving around, then then they would use the photographs for free. So it was a it was a kind of collaborative type thing, but it meant that I had no expenses. Yeah. Um, I had no home back in, in the UK, so I was living out of a bag, and, and so it was. So you didn't need to way. earn no. much. So it was very much planned that way. That, that, like I said, you you have to make it so that people want your work or need your work, and you can't expect that to happen overnight. So although I had a reputation, I've done a lot of work and, yeah. and been successful. It was in a completely different field. So I knew what I had to do was to create a body of work that then people would start saying, "Oh, we really need to work with this guy because stuff's great." But you know, I couldn't expect that to happen overnight. I had to learn the trade. I had to learn my craft. Was the skill was to learn how to communicate with people, how to build trust, how to learn to listen to stories, um, and, and to, to yeah, be able to then, through listening, be able to tell somebody's story. Did you start to think at that stage then that you might set up an organisation? Yeah, I mean, as, as things developed, um, you know, one of the things I realised was I didn't want to be funded in any way by newspapers or magazines. Why, Giles? Um, because for a start, they don't have the budgets. They don't have the budgets to do a story properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll, they'll send somebody, they can only afford to send somebody there for a couple of days or a week. You know, I need to spend months in a place to be able to tell a story. And then I didn't want to have anybody telling me how it should be put together editorially. 
So I was trying to find ways to to work differently. Mm. I also became interested in um, themes across this whole idea of legacy of war. So we tend to look at conflicts in terms of countries. Yeah. You look at the Vietnam War, you look at the war in Syria, you look at the, the Iraq conflict, Afghanistan, and, and they are kind of separate entities. And I became interested in the themes that cross them. Um, and that, you know, if you speak to somebody um, in Cambodia who talks about their experiences yeah. under the Khmer Rouge, and then you, you sit and listen to somebody in Syria talking about life under ISIS, you hear exactly the same stories. If you listen to somebody talking about landmines in, in Colombia and how it's impacted their community, it's exactly the same as somebody tell you that story in Angola. So I decided to look at it through themes rather than countries. And so with with that whole kind of uh, idea in mind, I I set up this project called Legacy of War. And Legacy of War was then going to be a five-year project that would do exactly that, that would look at different themes. So things like um, displacement Mm -hmm. of of people. It would look at um, the, the kind of the physical impact of war through injuries and also through the psychological impact of war. And it would look about how we can learn, because if you, basically you're telling the same story, but you can look at it as it's happening right now. So you can go to a country like Iraq or, or Syria yeah. and see people who are impacted by war right now, but then you can go to Vietnam, to Laos. You could interview people who are going through something 50 years later. And, and so you can really learn from that. And so I wanted to sort of look at things through themes, and then through how those changed over time. And were you thinking then who you were going to reach with these stories and how you were going to influence social change? Were you thinking really big picture, like sort of Don McCullum's influence or, or no, NGOs? I mean, no, because I think, I think you know, Don McCullum's influence was on a much broader cultural scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine was much more specific. So for me, again, you, know, you have to listen to the people, your, your stories you're telling. So... A lot of times they would say, well, make sure that this is seen by your leaders, by politicians. So, you know, what, what's more important to me, getting something on the, the front page of, of a Sunday magazine or sitting in a room with, with 20 influential politicians yeah. and telling them that story? Um, you know, for me, in many ways, getting that, that space with politicians yeah. would be more important. And were you starting to do that? Yeah, so that, that's, that's what I was kind of aiming to do and, and what I was doing with my work. So it was, it was nothing about any kind of personal glory or success. It was simply about how could I make sure these pictures had the same impact that I'd seen when, you know, I'd shown the pictures of uh, Nick to his doctors and psychologists uh-huh. and how that changed his life. Yeah. That was really the sort of the motivation for it. What made you move from taking photos to setting up an actual foundation? Well, I mean, that, first... I suppose that, that comes a little bit later in the story. I think the first sort of change was, was my involvement with charities became a lot deeper. Uh-huh. So rather than just taking photographs for them and, and giving them the photographs, I actually became much more involved in, in then helping them use those photographs in advocacy and, and, and yeah. storytelling. Yeah. So again, it wasn't just enough for me to just hand over some photographs and say, there you go, go use them. I realized I also had to be involved in, in the process of what you then did with those photographs. And then yeah, my relationship with, with NGOs... Um, particularly an Italian charity called Emergency, uh-huh. which I think for me personally is, is, is one of the most inspiring organizations I know. It was founded by a guy called Gino Strada. And Gino Strada is, is really the, 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 the role model for everything I do. Wow. Is Gino still alive? Yeah, yeah, Gino's still alive. He's, he's a fiercely um, outspoken surgeon. Um, and he was a war surgeon who worked in Afghanistan for many years. Uh-huh. 
he became a little bit tired of, of the organizations he was working for and so set up his own uh, medical charity called Emergency. In Italy, there is not one person you will meet who does not know Gino Strada. It'd be um, amazing to interview him, actually. Yeah. Social founders, maybe we'll you, try you, and do You that. have to be lucky. He's quite a grumpy guy. <laughs> I say that with all fondness, but he's he's um, he's he's a real strong character. And he basically started looking at what he was doing as a surgeon. And the reason he became frustrated with a lot of the big NGOs was he didn't feel that they were getting through to the root cause of the problem. And he said, as a surgeon, you have to look at the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is mm. the war in the first place. So how can you be a big medical NGO and also not campaign against the war? Yeah. And that was really why he set up Emergency. They have um, an amazing philosophy as well that is like, if I'm building a hospital for somebody in, in, in a developing country, why would I build it any differently than if I was building it for my children in Italy? Mm-hmm. So the hospitals are the highest standard you could possibly do. Um, they have the only uh, free medical surgical hospital for war injured in Afghanistan. Um, they have an amazing heart clinic, a heart surgery place in uh, in Sudan mm-hmm. and hospitals around the world. And they are the best hospitals I've ever visited. So I ended up becoming a trustee um, of emergency. Mm-hmm. So my, my involvement was now becoming you know, more more kind of um, interwoven with, with these organizations. And more strategic as well. Yeah, more strategic. And, and I was learning a lot as well and, and, and learning yeah, how these different organizations work, which one's I respected and sort of gleaning as much knowledge. I wasn't necessarily thinking that I wanted to to found my own organization, mm-hmm. but what I wanted to do is, is kind of take everything that I was learning and use that to help certain organizations like yeah. Emergency. Yeah. yeah, there's probably very few people that have seen so many different big NGOs operating as I have, yeah. because you know, as a photographer, you know, you, you spend time actually with the teams in the field, um, and you know, the big NGOs, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen how they operate in the field. And, you know, I think you get a different view than if you were sort of, you know, a dignitary or politician visiting those organizations or given a tour. You, you know, when you're actually sleeping in the dorms with the staff, yeah. when you're in the field with the staff every day, you really learn the good and the bad of those organizations, what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. And that was all part of my sort of building up of, of knowledge. And this reminds me of the issues around some of those big international NGOs using photography in a very sort of uh, humiliating way for some of the people they were photographing. You know, the kind of the mm. classic images of the starving child mm-hmm. with the flies on it used just to drive fundraising and without the depth of the story that you're talking about. It's still a big problem. And, um, you know, I will say there's a, there's a very big difference, but it's subtle and big. And that's the difference between using somebody's story and telling somebody's story. And a lot of NGOs, they use people's stories. And they, they take that story and then they use it to, to raise funds. Mm-hmm. Of course, in their mind, they're doing something right um, because they're trying to raise funds for, for a particular crisis. But for me, you have to actually tell somebody's story. Um, I still get frustrated. I still go in the field with a lot of NGOs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for example, one of the things I was, I was just talking about this last week is, is you often turn up and you'll be given a list of particular beneficiaries that they think you should visit that are good for stories. And I always call them like injury lists. It would just be a list of, you know, facial injuries, you know, missing limbs, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how their relationship with the media is with a lot of these these NGOs. Blames on both sides because media organizations who are flying into, you know, Iraq for a day will say, oh, we need to interview somebody, you know, who's been injured. We need a facial injury so we can see it clearly or we can see this. 
it's a very cynical and, and unpleasant way of, of approaching these stories. You know, I would say everybody has a story. If you can't find a story, it's your problem, not theirs. Yeah. And if we start putting people down as lists of injuries, then you, again, you're dehumanizing people. So I always turn up, I always rip these lists up. <laughs> um, and I normally upset everybody in the field because they've spent weeks trying to put this together for me. And they're like, Giles is going to visit me. <laughs> you know, they're getting pressure from their, their bosses to say, you know, it's an important visit and you've got to get everything right. And so the first day I would rip it up. And then I would turn to the team and I'd say, look, okay, let's start again. But rather than give me injuries, rather than give me lists of, of, of people's terrible stories. I said, tell me who's the person that makes you laugh when you're in the field? Who is the kid that like is the cheeky one? Who is the family that when you go to sleep at night, you think about? Yeah. And guaranteed that will always be a completely different list to the list I've started with. So that's how I kind of work. I want to hear afterwards what you're doing now with that content, but tell us, let's go back to your personal story because the shit hit the fan. Tell us a little bit about what happened, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, in, in 2011, I was working in Afghanistan. The intention was to spend time at the emergency hospital, um, the Italian charity I was just talking about, at their surgical center. But while I was there, I also wanted to understand the perspective of what was happening in, in Afghanistan through the eyes of, of you know young American soldiers that were fighting there. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think it's, it's important to show these kind of balanced... Um, opinions and balanced sides to stories. So I was embedded with a unit of the 101st Airborne. Um, and yeah, after a couple of weeks, unfortunately, we were out on patrol one day, we got ambushed, and I triggered an IED. So uh, basically a landmine. Yeah. Um, and in the blast, I lost both my legs and my arm. Um, miraculously, I didn't die. You know, I think at, at that stage, the it was only three years before, two years before, the first triple amputee from this country had survived a bomb blast. Yeah. There's only been 20. So, mm. you know, for, for me to have survived was, was really a miracle. Um, I was flown back to, to the UK. Can you remember? What, how, were you conscious? Yeah, I was conscious the full time, I remember. Yeah, I remember all of it. Incredible. Um, I was flown back to the, the UK, spent pretty much a year in hospital, 46 days in intensive care, um, 37 operations. Um, it was a long, you know, a long battle just to regain. I was told I'd never walk again or, yeah. or live independently. And, and certainly everyone doubted I would ever be able to work again. And certainly nobody thought I'd be able to work in the same environments that I had been when I, when I got injured. Yeah. And so you must have incredible strength, Giles, to have come out of that, both incredibly physically strong now, but mentally strong as well. So how did you find that strength? Where, where did you get it from? You've already told us about, you know, you're in hospital at 18, you have enormous strength that got you out of that, and then you had a crisis 10 years later and you found new strength to restructure your life and turn your photography skills into positive stuff. Now here you are all over again. How old are you when this happened, by the way? Um, 40. You were 40, so ten, you know, it's like almost every decade something horrendous happens mm. and you find this incredible strength. How do you do that? Where, um, where does that come from? I don't know if it's strength. I think I have a stubborn streak that's, that's always been there. Um, you know, my, my stubbornness was, was almost the, the, the thing that caused my own self-destruction at many times in my life because if I'd stuck to something, I used to stick with it even if I had kind of become aware that I was probably wrong. Uh, it was 37 operations. Um, yeah. It was obviously, you know, it was a really difficult time. It's hard to, to you know, really summarize it. I mean, the 46 days in intensive care, that's that's beyond hell that's something you know most people in intensive care for a couple of days Mm. 46 days is a very long time 
it's, it's 24, it's 24 hours. 24 hours, I mean, they're trying to keep you alive. With bleeps going off all the exactly. time. Exactly, you're in intensive care simply because you're dying. Yeah. Um, and so they're fighting to keep you alive. Yeah. As soon as they stabilize you, they move you to what's called a high dependency unit. Yeah. But I was in the, actually the intensive care room for 46 days. Mm. You don't know the time. There's no windows. The light's on 24 hours. There's mm. a, it's really noisy. It's mm. very intense. You, you're kind of going in and out of consciousness when they put you in medication. I couldn't talk because I had a tube in my throat. And my, my right hand was in a cast. Mm. So I couldn't write. So I could only communicate by blinking. Mm. You don't really know what's going on. There's people mm. rushing around. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And different doctors and nurses coming through. Oh, all absolutely, the time. yes. And, and it's it's just a constant process of, of you know you have no control over your own body. Um, you know you're not you're not eating, you're not drinking. Everything's being pumped into you, pumped out of you. Um, and and you know and you know you're on death's door that whole time. So that was a really you know very long and a very intense period. You can't even really have visitors come and see you. All my all my organs had given out, um, and at this stage my lungs were giving out. And there's a thing called ARDS, which is a very bad infection in the lungs. Mm -hmm. So a normal respirator doesn't work anymore. Um, and you just don't get enough oxygen because the lungs simply are not working. There's too much fluid in them. Yeah. And very few people, you know, it's, it's not a good survival rate once you've got ARDS. And I kept fighting to breathe. And, and basically the, 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 the doctor who was looking after me came in and said, look, there's two things are going to happen. Either you're going to keep going like you are your body can't take it for much longer. You will give up of exhaustion. Yeah. So at that point, it'll be too late to do anything and you'll die. So the other option is you let us take over now, but we'll have to put you on a respirator. Uh -huh. um, it's a very special called oscillating respirator, which means they have to put you, you'll be unconscious. And he goes, and I'll be honest, there's a 90% chance you won't wake up again from that either. Yeah. But he goes, I think that's the only chance that you have of survival. And, it was my sister that then sat down because I kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And it was actually my sister who, who sat with me and said, look, you have to let them take over. But, but you know, then everyone comes in to say their goodbyes to you. <laughs> um, so, you know, it Horrendous. was a constant. There were so many stories like that of, of, of moments where you, you're right on death's door and you know it and, and you just have to keep fighting. It's interesting, the, the stubbornness that you talked about when you were 15. Yeah, that, that, that's the, almost that stubbornness to live. Well, there's an interesting... Um, an interesting thing that, that I, I need to kind of explore more, but um, mm. sort of slightly jumping forward a bit. About halfway through um, that year in hospital, I, I was growing a bit frustrated with the way the surgeries were going and, and what was happening. Yeah. So I decided that by then I was in a much better state. I mean, I knew I had a lot of operations. I wasn't well, but, but I was in you know, a better mental state. I wasn't in intensive care. And I decided I needed to take control of what was happening. So I started actually interviewing surgeons and finding surgeons that I wanted to work with. Um, mm -hmm. And so I found, was put in contact with this guy called uh, Sheehan Hetharachi, who, who's head of Imperial. Um, and he's an amazing, amazing surgeon and now a great friend. But the first operation he did on me, we, we just met briefly. He knew my case history, yeah. um, obviously, and it was quite a well-known case. And it was a 14-hour operation, a very long, difficult operation. And afterwards, he came to see me, and he didn't know me at all then. I said, we just met once. And it's so funny because he said to me, I've... <laughs> Operated on thousands of people. I've never operated on such a stubborn body as yours. He, he was like, no, it was really stubborn. It wasn't doing things that we were you know, expecting it yeah. to do. It was really challenging, really difficult. And I find that fascinating that even, you know, unconscious yeah. and, and somebody not knowing you, that they would actually, a surgeon would find your body to have that stubbornness in it. That is so interesting, Giles. So it is something in your, yeah. in, in your DNA. Yeah. Um, but jumping back slightly, just one thing to, to I guess, wrap up with this whole um, the experience of, of that year in hospital. 
was, you know, you were asking me how it was in intensive care and how challenging that was. I say mm. intensive care is relatively simple. All you're doing is thinking about survival. It's, it's a momentary thing. And one of the big life lessons I have is, is um, to always just look at things in the space of a minute and five minutes. So when I actually got injured, when I got blown up, I remember thinking, okay, you're probably going to die, yeah. um, but you can keep alive for a minute. So just focus on that minute. Don't think about the bigger picture. So right. you, you focus on that minute, you get through it, and be like, okay, I can do another five minutes. Keep alive for five minutes, and then you can pass away. So <laughs> do five minutes. So intensive care is all about that. Yeah. And I kept breaking it down and just saying, okay, just think about your breathing for the next minute. And then you do that, and you think, okay, think about the next minute and just focus on your breathing. Don't think about anything else. Yeah. So you, that's how you, you deal with, with that kind of intensive care period. Actually, when things got really difficult uh, on a different level is when I was moved to the high dependency unit um, and things calmed down slightly. And that's when you have to come to terms with the, your new reality. And as I said, I was told I'd never walk again, that I would never probably live independently. Um, mm. At that stage, I couldn't even use my right hand, so I had to be fed. Um, I couldn't even sit up on my own. Mm. And I was moved after about three months after I got injured. I was well enough the first time just to even be moved to a wheelchair to have a shower. And that was the first time I kind of saw myself in a mirror and, and, and also the, the effort it took of several people to even get me in a chair, to even get me in a shower. Yeah. I realized how incapable I was of doing anything myself. Yeah. And it's when everything really, really hit me. And, and I remember going to bed that night and, and crying myself to sleep and thinking, I wish I just died in Afghanistan because I didn't want this new reality. Mm. And thinking, God, you know, I spent the last two months fighting for this and I don't want it. I, I just wish I'd just given up. Mm. And, yeah, I was very, very upset. But by the morning, something had clicked in my brain. And I woke up the next day, and I guess that stubbornness was back. And I just mm. said, look, from this moment on, I will never think about the things I can't do. But I will think about what I can, and I'll focus on those things, and I will excel at them. Giles, where did that come from? Incredible. I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those things. And it, just, it was very yeah. clear. Yeah. And that's probably the biggest lesson. And actually, it's liberated me on a lot of other things in life. And if I have one lesson that I've learned from, from you know, I call it that kind of that forge of suffering. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that I came out is that lesson. And all of us do this. You know, all of us focus on things that we can't control in life. Um, you know, if I speak to my friends and they've got problems, 90% of the problems that they tell me about the things that are bothering them, yeah. from Brexit to the annoying person that they work with, <laughs> they're things they can't control. And I'm like, but there's no point focusing your energies on something you can't control. Those things should always be in your periphery vision. They should be part of what um, affects your, your judgments and your decisions, but they cannot be central because if that thing is there in front of you, it blocks all other opportunities. And as I say, we all do that. We all focus on these things we can't control. And if you liberate yourself from that, if you mm. say, I can't affect these things, I'm aware of them, but I can't affect them, I will just concentrate on what I can do mm. and excel at those things, it liberates you in all parts of your life. Well, Giles, that's, uh, it's really interesting, this conversation, because you, you've, you've talked so much about physical stuff, whether it's the, the photos or your, you know, being, your whole body being blown to pieces, but actually... What you've just talked about is a gem around mental health and well-being, and you know, for someone like you to have that fight and mm. to be able to share that with the rest of us is really powerful. Can we can we come back to the foundation, the Legacy mm. of War Foundation? So, it had been something that was part of your thinking before you stepped on the IED. Yeah, this photographic project was there before I got injured, and then I remember when I was in hospital, just getting really frustrated because I saw it as just a big hiccup. 
you know, everyone else was saying they never work again, you never do anything. I was just going, this is just a pain in the ass. I just had to find a way to get through this and, and get back working because I was so clear on what my work was. And when um, did that clarity come in? Like after, you, you know, what, what stage from when you, your injury to... Oh, it was before I got injured. That's what I'm saying. Right. Is that, that's, that's what I had. So, you know, I, I was kind of clear and I wanted to continue that Legacy of War photographic project. Um, but increasingly, you know, my relationship, the way I was working, meant that, that my relationships with the people I was photographing was becoming deeper. And I guess the power of the stories I was telling meant that people started saying, well, how can I help that family? Or how can I help these people? Yeah. And I think we have an outlet for people. I could tell them about, you know, other charities that were working in that area yeah. and contact them through that. But I couldn't really say, well, this is how you can help that family. And then um, I suppose the, the, the really big turning point in it was a woman called Khalud. And Khalud was a, is a Syrian refugee. She was uh, paralyzed by a sniper's bullet. Um, uh, pretty much the same sort of time I was injured. And when I met her, she was living in the Bekar Valley in Lebanon mm-hmm. in a makeshift tent made of cardboard and bits of plastic. And her carer was her husband, Jamal. There's no refugee camps in, in Lebanon. They're kind of these informal settlements, which mm-hmm. is one of, the, one of the issues in, in Lebanon is... They never allow refugee camps to be built for the huh. crisis. So they're all these, what are called informal settlements, which is why they're makeshift tents rather than the actual UNHCR tents. So Khalud was living there. She'd been paralyzed from the neck down, living in a, say, in a tent, got no windows, mm. um, that was brutally cold in the, in the winter and, and impossibly hot in the summer. And really, you know, if you, if you think of a tetraplegic woman, in any other situation, she'd be you know, getting really high level uh, support and care so I'd never really met anybody that was in that much desperate need and getting no support and this was also one of the first times I was back working independently as well so I kind of really related to her uh, situation yeah. so I, I, I took photographs of her and her family and those pictures along with other stories were published um, worldwide and I kind of left it at that and then a couple of years later I was back in Lebanon and I managed to track down a lot of families and I went back to see, uh, say, families I'd met before. Yeah. And I got a phone call from Jamal, Khalud's husband. And I remember that phone call so clearly because he said, oh, we're here back in Lebanon. We'd love to see you. And I said, where are you now? And he said, well, we're in the same tent where you last saw us. And I remember like I'd been punched in the stomach. I remember feeling physically sick and I kind of repeated the question. I was like, no, where are you now, though? It's at the same place. And I hadn't even bothered to go back and look at them for them there because I'd assumed there was no way that they could still be in that same place. Um, because I say nobody I've ever met really was in more desperate need of support. And mm-hmm. maybe somewhat arrogantly, I'd kind of assumed, well, look, the pictures were published. Um, I knew that NGOs knew about her story. Mm-hmm. Um, surely somebody would have done something because of that. And nobody had. So I went back there and I, I walked into their tent and I remember bursting into tears and telling Clue I'd failed her. She said, no, we knew you'd come back. And that really was the, the final point when I realized that I could never take another photograph again without knowing that the people I was documenting, their lives would change in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I linked up with an American uh, actor and an organization he has called Random Acts in the States. Um, and we did a crowdfunding campaign. And we just shared Khalud's story. Yeah. And Khalud and Jamala, I would say it's a story of love. And we, we shared that oh. story of love. And we raised, in the space of 10 days, uh, $250,000. Amazing. Mm. And from that, 
I was able to not just help Khalud and get them rehoused, but help lots of other refugee families that I knew in, in particular uh, dire need in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And that was really the point when I said to myself, you know, I never been planned to have my own organization, but I would be doing a disservice to people if I didn't, because for whatever reason, people wanted to help people through my work. Mm-hmm. They were inspired by the stories and then wanted to help those people. And if I didn't do that, then I would be failing the people whose stories I was telling. And and you felt that the other NGOs couldn't help enough in that sense, that you needed the direct resource and the input where you knew you could actually channel that money directly to the people you knew and that you'd captured, where they kept, you'd captured their stories. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons. And, and then also, like I said earlier, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in, in the face of... of um, of conflict and, and seeing how organizations work in the field. And I would just see gaps. I, I don't want to mm-hmm. see them as failings of those organizations, but I would see gaps and things that weren't quite adding up or, or things that were being missed. And increasingly that was frustrating me and thinking, God, if only they did that or did this, you know, they could do more direct support. And really, I think for me, a philosophy came to me about how I would run an NGO if, if I could choose to. And that philosophy was very much about supporting people to rebuild their own lives. Mm -hmm. When I was in hospital, there was two groups of people. One group of people would be a sort of charity-based outlook where they would say, we'll make sure we raise funds for you so you'll be looked after, so we can get an adapted home, we can get you you not having to work, not having to worry about your future. Mm -hmm. That was one group of people. And the other group of people, the ones that said, right, how are we going to get you back working? How are we going to get you back in the field and doing your job? And that's what I wanted to be as, as, as an NGO. I wanted to be like that. Yep. I never wanted to offer people charity. I simply wanted to help facilitate them to get their own lives back. And that's really powerful what you've just said, actually. We, we, I was going to ask you for sort of almost top tips, but you've kind of, to me, you've said it mm. there in that, that attitude. Well, you know, one of the things I say as a, as a journalist and a photographer, you know, if a young photographer says to me, what, you know, give me one tip, I say, listen. And it's such an obvious thing to say, but, you know, a lot of photographers will go to a place with an idea of the picture that they want the story that they want. And I said, no, the first thing you have to do is listen to the people. And again, that's what I took into the Legacy of War Foundation with that mm-hmm. same philosophy of listening. Mm-hmm. And you go somewhere and you sit with people and then you ask them, how can I help you? How can I be your ally? Mm-hmm. How can I be your, your supporter? Mm-hmm. And let them tell you, let them sort of facilitate the project. Mm-hmm. And that for me is about empowerment. And that's how we work as an organization. The greatest resource, I think, not used by NGOs, mm. is the beneficiaries themselves. Yeah. There you find resilience, you find strength, you find ideas, yeah. you find ingenuity, people that have gone through terrible situations. They have all these skills. And solutions. And solutions. Yeah. That they've been, you know, those women have been working in those fields for 20 years yeah. thinking what they want to do yeah. if they had the opportunity. So what ask you, them what it is that they want. You're doing incredible work, Giles. You're, you're an amazing person, incredible strength. You've, done, you've set up this organisation. How are you going to use it in the future? What are your plans for the foundation? Do you, do you plan to scale it up to make it big or do you want to keep it very small and very influential? How much do you want to use the photography, the media, the, the voices and how much do you want to actually you know, provide more solutions for projects on the ground? Tell us your plans for the future. And also and, for anybody listening, and, you know, how, what, can, what can we do to contribute? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I want to see it, it grow. Um, you know, and that's not about, the ambition is not about, you know, 
how much money we're, 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 we're turning over or how many projects we've got running. It's simply the fact. You know, I've been in 16 countries in the last 12 months. Yeah. I see every day of my life people who desperately need support and people who, with that right support, can go on to achieve amazing things. Yeah. I was in um, Cambodia last year and I met a man at a prosthetic center who'd been injured as a child. Um, he was a soldier in the Khmer Rouge, a child soldier. He'd lost both his legs. He'd received some basic prosthetic legs, but never really got the support to learn how to use them. Uh-huh. And being a double amputee makes life a lot harder. It's very complex to learn how to, to use those legs. So he'd never been able to work or look after himself. He was now in his 50s. Um, he said, come, come and visit me at home tomorrow. So I went to visit him at home. Did he know that you were also a double amputee? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I went to visit him at, at, at home the next day. And he lived with his sister, who was a very lovely woman, but, but living in poverty herself and struggling to look after her own family. And so this man took me around to the side of this house and he, he showed me these three uh, dog baskets on the floor and a little bit of plastic that covered them. And he pointed at the middle one and he said, that's my bed. So this, this man, who was injured the same as me, um, who has the same injuries mm-hmm. and the same resilience and the same strength, but he hasn't had the same opportunity. And because of that, he lives like a dog. So in terms of how we, we scale up, how we, we grow as an organization, mm-hmm. there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who are quite literally having to live like a dog because they haven't had that opportunity. So how can I rest how can I not hope to do more mm. knowing that and knowing that there are simple ways to change that? So, yeah, as an organization, we're growing. Um, I think one of the other important things as well is I want to keep learning from what we're doing and, and building that, that, that skill up and, and finding better ways that we can help and be more effective. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that, that need support, but often there's actually quite simple solutions mm. and simple ways to help people to, as I say, rebuild their own lives. And are you, going to, are you going to continue campaigning? What's the balance between what the foundation does that's around influence of policy or, or influencing the huge NGOs to change their, their practice versus you actually providing the support directly yourselves? Yeah, I mean, advocacy is a huge part. And, and like I said, you know, Gina Strada, who's an inspiration to me, as a surgeon, he said, you know, the root cause of the problem is war. You have to campaign against war. You know, I've worked with a lot of big NGOs in this country and, you know, again, I won't, I won't name names, but ended up in, in really frustrating situations where they didn't want to say certain things because they were upset about, worried about upsetting governments and, and countries that they're working in. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is wrong what's happening in this country. You know, at what point do you, do you stand up and say, no, this is wrong. You have to stop bombing this or you have to stop doing this as opposed to saying, well, we don't want to upset anybody because we'll lose our funding. You know, you know, at the end of the day, the root cause of all these problems is conflict. You know, the refugee crisis, the people who suffer these terrible injuries. You know, most, most modern conflicts, about 90% of the injured are civilians. Yeah. And the only way you can stop that is by, by stopping the wars. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, a pacifist. I wouldn't say I was completely against war. But there's a hell of a lot of wars that, that are unnecessary. Um, and everything I can do to stop them happening is as important as, as also then helping those that have suffered through them. Yeah. And if you had one wish, one vision for what your foundation will become in five years, ten years, what would that be? Because you're working with you know, top 
celebrity with massive attack, with PJ Harvey, with you've got this access to incredible celebrity influence, plus the NGOs. I mean, I do hope that we can become, you know, I think the way that the charities, I mean, I don't even like the word charity, no. but the way that the foundations and NGOs work is changing. It's a whole other conversation, but I think there was a big change in a lot of organizations when uh, the refugee crisis was happening in Europe. Mm -hmm. I saw that firsthand. I was in Lesbos, and, and a lot of grassroots organizations have sprung up because people were frustrated. They were looking at stuff on the news going, this is, this is just in Greece, yeah. and people are dying on the beaches there, and where are all these big organizations? And so people really kind of said, I'm just going to go there and do something. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those organizations have really grown, and they're now working in, in Lebanon and in other countries, in Iraq. And so that was one thing, which was a sort of people power. Yeah. At the same time, you've also got the amazing power of, of social media, of crowdfunding campaigns, which means you can raise money directly for people, and people want to see where their money's going. Yeah. And then also uh, a basic mistrust, because there's been some big mistakes made by some of the big organizations, and, and you know, I don't need to, to, to list those, but we're all aware that, that a lot of them have not yeah. been, been great. So there's a revolution, I think, in the way that the, uh, the charity sector works. And I just, I just hope yeah, we, we can do things in a way that, that people look at and think that's actually yeah. the kind of organization I want to get involved with, yeah. that we really are about empowering people. Yeah. We're not there to support people yeah. in the sense of, of just give them handouts. We are there to help them to realize their own dreams. Yeah. Giles, you think you're doing like the equivalent of Don Cullen's books. Well, I hope you will, because your photos are amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my work is, is exhibited. And I've mm. just, for example, I've got a big exhibition in Geneva at the moment, which is alongside Lake Geneva. I've got one in, in Italy at the moment. So, so, you know, again, I'm always trying to find ways to get the, the work out there that's not necessarily the traditional ways. Yeah. You know, books are great, magazines are great, but does that really make a difference? as opposed to when I'm doing a talk in a school and a bunch of 16 and 17 year old kids are listening to that story yeah. and, and you find them crying yeah. and being really you know moved. It's one of the things we're starting to do as an organization is careers days Great. Um, and, and other things. So, so for me, I was wondering I, about the yeah, I would people. much rather yeah. sit in a room with a hundred people and yeah. tell them stories face to face yeah. and see how that impacts them as opposed to you know, a book or a magazine where I know most of the people that buy that book or magazine already agree with me and already know those stories. Right. So you know, for me, I have this, um, I call it my burning house theory. Uh -huh. And that is that if there's a house on fire and there's somebody in the window screaming, 99.9% .9 of people would try and save that person. Yeah. They would not ask, are you Muslim, are you Christian? Yeah. Are you straight, are you gay, are you black, are you white? They would see a human being in that window and the instinct would be to save that person. My job is to make sure that people see people fleeing Iraq or Syria or people living in South Sudan the same way that they see that person in the burning house. And so that is my job, is to keep being an advocate for those people so that people really understand those stories. And I can't do that through books or magazines. I can only do that by actually engaging with communities that normally would be you know, maybe, maybe slightly more against these kind of stories. I just think that, yeah, there, there's... There's an amazing opportunity in the world right now. You know, people are very um, overwhelmed, I think, by all the issues in the world. Yeah. And Which can lead to powerlessness. Exactly. And people become, feel impotent. They feel that they can't actually impact anything. And I have this, again, it's a simple belief that each one of us has the power to create change through our own skills. My skill was as a photographer. There are times I wish I was a doctor or I wish I was a politician. I'm not those things. I have one ability, and that's to tell a story.
And each one of us has something we can do. Each one of us has a skill. And we can find ways to use that skill. And by doing that together, then we really can create change. Giles, that's really inspirational. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us and for your openness. And thank you for your stubbornness as well. You're a very special person. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Many thanks again to Giles Dooley for sharing his incredible story with us on Social Founder Stories. You can connect with Giles and donate to his foundation at www.legacyofwarfoundation.com and you can see more of his stunning photography at legacyofwar.com. Do follow Giles on Twitter and Instagram at Giles Dooley and on Facebook at Giles Dooley Photography. Thanks again, Giles, for sharing your story, and we look forward to keeping in touch. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.socialfounder.org. Social Founder Stories is brought to you in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. Thank you.